I'm Chris Reback. This is Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis. You surely know the saying that it takes a village. In the fight to understand and solve breast cancer, that village is more like a globally connected series of research labs, scientists, patients, funders, and more. In other words, something that looks a lot like the Translational Breast Cancer Research Consortium. The TBCRC, as it's known, is a collaborative group founded in 2005 to conduct innovative and high-impact clinical trials for breast cancer. The numbers are impressive. It's composed of 19 clinical sites and five working groups with nearly 50 studies launched. These breast cancer investigators share information, data, successes, and, yes, obstacles, as they often coordinate their efforts towards their common goal. And their executive officer is Dr. Antonio Wolf. The first thing you're going to want to know about Dr. Wolf is his Twitter handle. For the record, it's at a wolf with two F's. As you'll hear, he recognizes the importance for patients, researchers, and everyone else to have clear communication about the science and research around breast cancer. The second thing you'll want to know is that you'll learn a lot from his feed, of course, but also from him in this conversation about how cross-discipline, cross-institutional, and cross-border collaboration is key to attacking the disease. Some background. Beyond serving the TBCRC, Dr. Wolf is a professor of oncology at Johns Hopkins University and a member of the Johns Hopkins Kimmel Cancer Center. Among other honors and roles, Dr. Wolf is an associate editor of the Journal of Clinical Oncology and a fellow of the American Society of Clinical Oncology. For the last three years, he's been recognized by Thomson Reuters as one of the world's most highly cited researchers, the top 1% in clinical medicine. And despite all of this, he maintains an active clinical practice dedicated to the care of patients with breast cancer. Dr. Wolf has been a BCRF investigator since 2007. Before our conversation, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these investigating breast cancer conversations. And if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you for considering my request. That's it. Here's my conversation with Dr. Antonio Wolf. Dr. Wolf, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. It's so good to be with you, Chris. Thank you for the invitation. So, of course, you're a globally renowned cancer and breast cancer expert, and I'm really looking forward to getting to talk with you about that. But... In researching you, I'd like to point out, not only are you a top scientist, you also can do a pretty mean Twitter with a not unimpressive following. How do you do that? Well, I'm actually impressed that you uh, did your homework and you noticed that. I actually, uh, how do I do that? I actually try to think about things that would be interesting to me mm. or to people like me or to people that would be interested in what we uh, scientists do day-to-day, uh, -day, on a day-to-day -day basis and what it might mean uh, for them. And so I try to be as conversational as possible. I try to be, you have to be succinct, you have to be short, 
And uh, you have to be, uh, I would say, to the point to capture the essence of, of the message. And so I begin doing Twitter. I actually registered for Twitter probably 2009. And that's probably why I have an easy Twitter handle. <laughs> yes, you do. You were first in. You, you, were, you were first in on, on the Twitter. I I think Twitter started in 2007, and okay. I joined probably in 2009. But I can tell you that I did nothing with it for a while. Yes. And I was doing the proverbial lurking, looking around. <laughs> yes. And, and then I realized that uh, what Twitter does, and I think that you could be said the same about social media, it, it really allows uh, scientists to communicate directly to the public. Mm. And at the end of the day... Uh, this is what this is all about. There is no question. We all went into science because we were curious. We went into science because we we want to find out how things work. Yep. And then many of us, like me, went into the medical field and into research because we wanted to help people. And so we do a great job in speaking complicated in writing complicated and uh, whether it's a paper or a grant but at the end of the day whether we are communicating with the public or with a grant agency we need to speak plain language and plain english yes and so twitter has been uh, i find it awesome because it gives us the opportunity to reach out to the public directly and it forces us to be sharp in our thinking. So I will say that actually Twitter and other forms of uh, communication, and I can tell you, I use Twitter professionally. I don't use it for personal uh, yes. uses. Yep. Um, it, it allows me to, it forces me to be more clear in my communication and, re and the feedback we get gives you the opportunity to better understand if uh, what what you as a researcher think is interesting really matters uh, to the people for whom this should matter the most. It's a great platform. It's an excellent platform and uh, you are excellent at it. And so look, if the whole medical science research thing doesn't work out for you, you always can apply for an entry-level job as a social media editor at a, at a startup <laughs> in Silicon Valley. Hey, Look at what you there can you do. Go. Yeah. There so, you go. So in your plain language, in your maybe a little bit more than 140 characters, but you know, in, uh, in, in ways that uh, the rest of us can understand, what is the Translational Breast Cancer Research Consortium? So the TBCRC, um, as we call it, yep. um, and by the way, the TBCRC does not yet have a Twitter presence. Oh. And uh, this is actually something that we've been discussing among us uh, exactly for all the reasons that we, we just mentioned. But I'll come back to that in a moment because uh, we have other ways to remain relevant. And, and, and then the other funny thing is that the, the, the handle at TBCRC already belongs to someone else who does something that has nothing to do with breast cancer. So we now need to come up with a mm. nice Twitter handle for TBCRC. Yes. But we'll, we'll get to that. At the real TBCRC. Oh, I like that. 
So anyway, what is TBCRC? Uh, T, the TBCRC is actually something that um, a number of us, including some of my seniors at that time, individuals like uh, Drs. Larry Norton, Dr. Nancy Davidson, uh, Dr. Eric Weiner, and a few others. Yeah. Um, we uh, the TBCRC was started uh, to um, occupy a niche that did not exist in the middle of to the the two thousands, and uh, we have breast cancer is a discipline um, that has involves a group of investigators that has been extremely cooperative and collaborative going back to the 1970s. And for that, I give a huge amount of credit to all the individuals that came before me. I'm very, I am not uh, that young, but I'm not also <laughs> not that old. So I, I occupy a niche in my development that I, I really have gotten to know uh, many, if not most, of the uh, breast cancer investigators. I would call them from the second generation of uh, breast cancer researchers, uh, individuals that finished their training in the 19, late 1960s, 1970s, and were extremely active in the 1980s and um, developing a lot of the evidence, leading studies in the 1990s. And then in the 2000s, they were beginning to occupy a role in a position that today I am uh, fortunate enough to be in that role, mm. where I can also now be in a position where I can train the next generation of investigators, which is really a lot of fun and one of the main things we do in TBCRC. So my colleagues, my then seniors, uh, began, they noted how difficult it was to bring together like-minded uh, individuals. Uh, many of the studies done in the 1990s, 1980s and 1990s, were relatively uh, small studies, uh, no more than a few hundred patients. But um, uh, some smart statisticians and epidemiologists began to uh, realize the opportunity to bring all of those studies together and do what we call a systematic review and meta-analysis, a, a concept of the big data, but yep. putting together not real-world evidence, but rather a collection of well-conducted clinical trials and trying to see if those large uh, putting together all these data at a patient level could then allow us to begin to observe patterns that were not clear if you're just looking at an individual trial. And these meta-analyses proved to be incredibly helpful to allow us, for instance, in the mid-1990s, we it took us a long time to begin to realize that as one concept, adjuvant endocrine therapy, the use of a drug called tamoxifen for yes. women with estrogen receptor positive disease. Until 1995, there was a belief that these medications, tamoxifen, did not help women with early stage breast cancer, uh, did not help improve their survival. And it was only after one of the um, Oxford overview meta-analysis published in 1995, doing exactly what I just described, putting together a lot of similar 
uh, size studies that the effect became obvious and that changed clinical practice. So we, um, the NCI with the war on cancer in the 1970s and making investments in the 1980s was uh, funding in the U.S. a number of uh, what we call cooperative groups. At that time, SWOG, uh, NSABP, uh, CALGB, ECOG, and a few others, NCCTG as well. And uh, we, these groups were doing studies now, uh, a lot of studies, especially in the adjuvant setting, many studies in metastatic disease as well. These were studies that required several hundred patients, um, and uh, many went on to change uh, the, the clinical practice in breast cancer in early stage in, in advanced disease. But the amount of funding available at that time allowed many more ideas coming from these uh, friendly competitive groups uh, where you kind of uh, nudging each other, challenging each other to do better and better because your best friends are also competing with you. And um, NCI, NCI always very supportive of us doing these types of studies, but they were very time-consuming, it took a long time, uh, but also allowed a whole generation of investigators to be trained and uh, to become very good at uh, designing, implementing, analyzing, and reporting clinical trials and improving more and more their ability to communicate with the public, uh, which goes back to what we were discussing moments ago. You've called it a center without walls. I call it a center without walls because it, uh, it, it brings, we try to keep our uh, infrastructure as nimble as possible. And uh, one of the things that began to happen in the early, the late 1990s and early 2000s is that the um, uh, level of funding coming from the National Cancer Institute uh, began to decrease for, uh, in order to support the infrastructure and the number of ideas we had in the cooperative group systems. And uh, we also had a number of institutions, many of the major academic press programs in the U.S., uh, doing with great ideas and able to do, but because they are single institutions, they were able to do smaller studies at that at the same time were smaller, but also uh, we had the capability of doing studies that were more, I call them biospecimen intensive. And what mm. I mean by that, we had the ability to uh, do more blood tests, collect more blood samples from patients on trials. We were able to potentially do research biopsies. So someone with early stage or advanced disease, we would ask patients to volunteer to donate a tissue sample to allow a research biopsy of breast tissue or a site of metastasis in an organ like liver or lymph node. And these studies, are, these are more costly. These are more time-consuming. And uh, the it was becoming difficult to do these types of more biospecimen-intensive trials within the cooperative group systems because the level of funding available for those types of uh, 
biospecimen collections was simply not available. The NCI would provide us, for the most part, with resources to run the study, to test new treatments, but we always had to go elsewhere to figure out how to collect the the specimens. Mm. So we had a situation, why did we do the TBCRC? We had a situation where we had the um, the cooperative group system was allowing us to do uh, still very important and practice changing trials, but asking simpler questions. And we had a lot of new ideas that uh, required a, a bigger dive into the details, as I mentioned, with correlative uh, studies using blood and tissue specimens. And we figured out that we needed something in between because we need some, instead of doing the, the large studies via the cooperative groups or the much smaller trials and more intensive with one or two institutions, we realized that we actually needed to have something in between where we could bring together three, four, five, six, up to 10 institutions at a time joining a study where we could do what we were doing within each of our institutions, but in a larger scale with more patients and uh, taking advantage of the uh, uh, broad uh, expertise that we all have to design the best possible studies. And, And I think that this is one of the critical things about TBCRC, the ability to give junior investigators the opportunity to present, propose their ideas uh, to more senior investigators, hone their skills, improve the quality of their proposals, and design the best possible studies so that we could continue to uh, develop the pipeline of uh, junior investigators that one day would become senior investigators and that's exactly i i with others am am a perfect example of individuals that grew up in that system yep cross-discipline cross-generation cross-border is is what i'm hearing from you cancer is one example it's going to touch on all of us all of us at some point in our lives will be affected by cancer We will have a loved one who is affected by cancer. We will know someone in our social professional circles. So it is an equal opportunity uh, challenge for for us all. The way that TBCRC is organized is exactly to take advantage, to be ready and to take advantage of opportunities as they developed. You're bringing together so many institutions, I think 19 institutions, maybe it's grown since, you know, maybe maybe it's slightly more than that. But I, I my interpretation is you are creating that very infrastructure so that we're at a continual high pace in terms of research. That is absolutely true. So we the TBCRC was started with, uh, if I remember correctly, at the beginning, we were about 11 or 13 institutions and then gradually uh, got to the number we are today where we don't have all of the best institutions, but we have among the most experienced uh, breast cancer academic research programs in the U.S. Mm. So individuals that have expertise in clinical trials, individuals who have expertise in laboratory research, and many of us who can bridge both uh, camps 
the uh, clinical arena, taking care of patients, as well as the more fundamental laboratory studies that could potentially have clinical relevance. So what we have done, and uh, we are, as you said, a center, uh, we function as a center without walls. We uh, have been able with uh, trying to keep us nimble without uh, physical locations, but taking advantage of the tools available for communication. We uh, have uh, hired uh, a couple of individuals who serve as business managers and program managers and protocol coordinators who are individuals who help keep the glue together uh, so that a number of people like me, uh, most of us are academic researchers uh, with expertise in medical oncology, surgical oncology, radiation oncology, laboratory science. And then we bring the people who help. We scientists dream of the studies we want to do, but then we need individuals who are going to make it happen uh, logistically. So we have a protocol coordinators. We also need individual with, individuals with expertise in legal issues, contracting, because we need and finances, because yeah. all of this takes um, effort. And I often say, no money, no mission. So we have to be very careful <laughs> yes. that we put together studies that have, uh, we are able to fund the studies we do. We have appropriate budgets. So you really, how many people it takes to change a light bulb? Unfortunately, not just one person, but a, a whole a small army. But we function without a, a physical location. We are all based around the U.S. in our uh, academic institutions. Many of us don't receive direct funding from TBCRC, but we come together within TBCRC because it has given many people like me the opportunity to join uh, together um, in uh, a cr within individual working groups. And uh, we have uh, monthly phone calls, uh, and they happen usually about eight, nine times throughout the year. And then we get all together twice a year in the spring and fall. And just to give an idea, working groups, we have uh, working groups focusing on triple negative breast cancer, focusing on estrogen receptor, uh, positive breast cancer, HER2 positive breast cancer. We also have working groups focusing on, we call it local regional issues, so a number of surgeons and radiation oncologists. And then recently, we also added uh, an immuno-oncology uh, interest group. And so we got together by phone. We have uh, identified among us uh, individuals with expertise in bringing people together. They function as co-chairs. Uh, we have uh, patient advocates represented in each of these working groups. We have uh, clinical trial methodologists, statisticians as well. And so we, uh, on a regular basis, we propose a new idea that um, uh, we think could be an important idea in answering questions that uh, we have about issues we are facing in the clinic. Any one of us can bring a new question, a new idea. And then we start thinking about could this potentially 
Um, do we have something here that could potentially be addressed uh, in a clinical trial? And then through an iterative process, um, an idea is uh, discussed and we think about how what would be the best clinical trial design uh, to address that question. Usually the person who proposes that idea becomes the champion hmm. and uh, others begin to offer ideas and collaborate. And through over a couple of months, very quickly, we may have the opportunity to uh, develop a, a clinical trial. And uh, and I think it goes back to the, the points that we were making before. Uh, it is so important to have us more or less on standby. We know that every month on the same time, on the same day of the week, mm. we're going to have a phone call and uh, we have a, we have a organizers and coordinators that help us with agendas and minutes. So we know exactly what, what conversations that may need to happen in between conference calls. And we gradually, we have, uh, this gives an opportunity to for junior and mid-career investigators to immediately get feedback without having to wait for a study section to provide feedback in a couple of months. But we get almost immediate feedback of an idea, whether this is a good idea, not a good idea, or an idea that needs refinement. And then we can take it to... Uh, a steering committee of about 10 people uh, with uh, more senior individuals with a lot of experience. And then we can figure out how how best to make sure that the question we are asking is relevant. And let's figure out how we are going to fund this through philanthropic funding or sometimes partnership with industry, because in many cases they have access or control individual drugs of interest and how uh, ultimately we make it all come together. So we have, it goes back to the same challenges we're having. We use the example of coronaviruses. It's no different than that. We need to have people available and ready to handle a new challenge rather than creating something that doesn't exist. Yeah, And that real time, near real time feedback from uh, folks who have gone through it before from top researchers and scientists from around the world, uh, that, that type of feedback is, has to be invaluable. And I can only imagine, um, what those phone calls and that feedback is like. Now, uh, of course, for somebody like you, one full-time job just isn't enough, is it? Uh, so let's talk about quickly your own research. You focus on new treatment strategies, as I understand it, the development and implementation of prognostic and predictive biomarkers, tissue, blood, imaging, in a clinical practice, um, as well as how to improve the survivorship experience of breast cancer patients and their caregivers. How do those come together, or are they unique paths? Although, as I ask that, in listening to you, I assume that with you, Everything connects. So ex <laughs> explain to me how, how those all come together for you. You're, you're a good observer. I think you're absolutely correct. And uh, so what you just, uh, the list that you read, essentially, uh, they could represent the career of uh, many individuals and not just the career of one individual. And I, I tell my colleagues, uh, I meet with a lot of younger investigators and trainees, 
uh, and I joke that if they look at my publication record, they will have trouble identifying one specific theme. And uh, and even when we go around the table, sometimes in meetings, and uh, you're spending the first couple of meetings introducing yourselves, and people raise their hand, my name is so-and-so, and I'm interested in X, Y, and Z. And it got to the point that I nowadays, when, when we go around the table in an example like this, I usually raise my hand and say, my name is Antonio Wolf, and I, I am interested in anything and everything that is related to breast cancer, mm. and which is true. Yeah. And I yeah. think it, it reflects my background. I, I have a busy clinical practice. I see patients two days a week. And uh, I've been doing this. I finished my training uh, in the mid-1990s. So I've been doing this for 20-plus years. So I have patients that have been with me for a long time, and I've seen them going through major health challenges, but also major important life events. And I think this is a perfect reminder of uh, what this is all about. It's about people. And even in my personal life i've gone through i have a family I, I have had my own health challenges and i think those are as we get older we realize that uh, at the end of the day we are trying to help individuals and help them live their lives the best way possible and that is the same answer i give to many people who ask me how can you it must be so difficult to be a cancer specialist and my my answer is i don't think i could have done anything different or anything better than what I do, because it is truly, and that's part of the reason why I made a conscious decision in my training as I was doing, I, I was a laboratory researcher during part of my training, learning laboratory skills and the challenges of doing uh, science in the lab. I very quickly realized uh, I have, I like being around people. Mm. I like, it is a privilege to that patients give us, they open a window in their lives and their most personal issues and fears and give us the opportunity to go in there and we have a responsibility then to help them the best way possible. And I think it goes, so in, in, in this, the trajectory of being a medical oncologist as I am, but this applies to any other uh, medical discipline, uh, we, uh, the, the issues are, uh, they cover a whole gamut because it is, do, do we have the best diagnostic tools so we can diagnose the, make the correct diagnosis? So not until you find exactly what is going on, you can then come up with a plan of action. And then you need to figure out, uh, whether the tests are the, uh, the appropriately developed and give you, you accurate information and whether that is an imaging test, an MRI, a PET-CT, whether this is a blood test, you need to be able to, you, you don't have false positives and false negatives, and you make sure that the tests are really doing what they are supposed to do. And then we have treatments that we need to find out are, is this new treatment going to really help or is this treatment going to just uh, have toxicities, be it 
side effects, but sometimes also financial toxicities and costs? Do they have not only efficacy, but also effectiveness? Do they improve outcomes compared to other uh, treatments? And then we have... Uh, once you um, treat someone, you are, I often tell my patients, especially patients with early stage disease, um, I am going to be your doctor for a while, but my hope is to become the doctor in your past so that mm. you can finish your treatment for early stage disease and uh, you will now, uh, I'll be able to help you move on with the rest of your life. And hopefully you will forget, even come to the point that you forget that at one point you had cancer and you can move on and have your relationship with your primary care physician and do everything that you want to do and forget about me and forget about all of this. And then, obviously, for some patients with advanced disease, we may not be able to cure their disease and allow them to forget about this, but we can hopefully improve their not only their quantity of life, but also their quality of life so that they spend time with doing what is important for them, whether it is to work, to study, to retire, to see uh, children graduating, growing up, and uh, falling in love, to live a, live a full life as much as possible. And for patients with incurable disease who unfortunately will die from the disease, help them during that transition. So I, uh, the, the, the type of work that I do touches, um, as I said, I, I am interested in anything related to breast cancer, uh, anything that could in one way or another uh, improve the quality of the work we do, improve our ability to help people. And that is one of the things why uh, being a researcher in breast cancer and uh, being a part of, as one example, as TBCRC, it is such a privilege because I can now I am surrounded by smart people, and uh, it just kind of, as I often joke, it just it raises my IQ uh, just by being surrounding myself with very smart people who are going to challenge me to do my best. It's, no, it's almost like a sports team, a sport competition. We're going to be better practicing together, training together. Another point, even within TBCRC and in other groups as well, we we have probably we are one of the groups of the largest number of patient advocates uh, in it. So within TBCRC, we have 19 institutions. A criteria for membership is that we need to identify one patient advocate from each institution to come and join us. When we get together, we have 19 patient advocates in the room. All the discussions have a patient advocate present. They split themselves within the various working groups so that because they are volunteering their time, but they make sure that what we do matters. They make they keep us humble, as I often say, and they call when they see BS, they call it. When they see uh, that we are going down on a tangent and getting excited about an idea that may not be relevant to patients now or in the future, or we are asking patients to do too much, they tell us. 
And this has been, as I said, incredibly humble, humbling, because at the end of the day, this is about helping people. Well, my in listening to you, my estimation is that while perhaps at some point, as you hope, they can forget about having had the disease, I'm highly skeptical that they are able to forget about having had you as their doctor. That doesn't seem quite possible. Um, Dr. Wolf, to close out this conversation, what role has BCRF played in your research? I am so grateful to organizations like uh, BCRF because they, they play such a unique role in so many aspects of everything we do. Uh, the BCRF has been able to channel the energy and the interest of uh, the public who begins to understand uh, and do their best to try to understand what we do. Um, it, there is a lot of goodness out there. There is, as I said, cancer, not just breast cancer, but cancer at large. And I actually wish that every single disease, lung cancer, prostate cancer, had uh, the privilege of having an organization like BCRF and many of the other diseases uh, and physicians are fortunate to have so. Uh, the BCRF has been able to be a conduit by an incredibly talented, inspired, motivated group of individuals some of them scientists, others not scientists, but individuals with the public good in mind. And uh, to channel um, the work by volunteers, the work of philanthropists, the work of individuals, uh, many of them who are very wealthy, others who are not individuals, who, but who are interested in helping and figuring out how can I use my my, my dollar, my resources, and potentially make sure that this is well used. So BCRF um, brings it all together um, and uh, providing developing resources. Uh, I often joke, we, we know that every vote counts, every dollar counts, and it adds up very quickly. And uh, with its scientific leadership, they people who can um, pay attention to many of the challenges and health issues and ideas uh, challenge us researchers to think about new ways, novel ways, to do things in in manner that has not been done before, and uh, with all of that, they are not the BCRF is not simply writing checks and uh, doing fundraising in their various events, but they are spending a lot of time with us, listening to what we scientists are saying, uh, doing what you are doing today uh, as a non scientist trying to understand what we do and then wearing the hat of the public, uh, helping us put ideas together, uh, not only to explain to the public, but also to make sure that the work we do has relevance. And so it is um, organizations like the BCRF are so unique. And I think we researchers have an obligation 
to, uh, as I often say, we need to help BCRF help us by helping BCRF communicate with the public what we do. And I think that this is uh, one of the best examples of a public-private uh, partnership. Uh, and BCRF not only interacts with the public, they also interact with industry because they often themselves want to further help researchers but they need to have a little bit of a wall separating their corporate interests from uh, some of the public scientific interests because of issues of conflict of interest. So I could go on and on, but I think it is absolutely uh, amazing what an organization like the BCRF has been able to do over the past 25 plus years. Well, wow, that's terrific. And it's made up of uh, the folks who you described, but also uh, folks like yourself who are uh, advancing things, bringing together researchers and scientists from around the world, and as you described, working with patients every day. Uh, Dr. Wolf, thank you. Thank you for your time, and most obviously, thank you for your work. And I am very thankful that you took the time to to listen to people like me, because it goes back to the, our earlier conversation about Twitter uh, sometimes we can communicate in a minute, sometimes we need 10 or 15 minutes, but this is all about us ex be explaining to people why what we do is so important. So I'm very grateful that you took the time to speak with me today. That was my conversation with Dr. Antonio Wolf. My thanks to Dr. Wolf for joining and you for listening. To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org slash podcasts. Mm -hmm.